0: In just seven days last June, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court set back public health by 50 years. The court's conservative majority rolled back efforts to address the pressing threat of climate change, expanded access to deadly firearms and eliminated the right to abortion by overturning Roe v. Wade. Earlier, it had eviscerated public health powers to curb the COVID-19 pandemic. We fear this is just the start. In its new term, which began the first Monday in October, the same justices could do even more harm to undermine public health along with its highest value, reducing the cavernous health inequalities that became so evident throughout the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: That was Larry Gostin, a university professor of law at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law, reading from the first opinion essay, Will There Be a Supreme Assault on Public Health?, that he wrote with Michelle Williams, dean of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor.
0: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO at STAT. Many drugs across the country are at risk of shortage. Eric Edwards, president and CEO of Flow, is here to discuss how they're revamping
1: America's broken medical supply chain. Thanks, Angus. At Flow, we're on a mission to reimagine the essential medicine supply chain from the ingredients to finished products. We're making this possible through continuous flow chemistry and other advanced development and manufacturing processes. Through our smart CDMO services, we help pharmaceutical and biotech companies improve yields, reduce manufacturing costs, and sustain our environment by providing customized services for small molecule APIs and registered starting materials across all stages of development, all done right here in the United States. For more information, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's p h l o w-usa.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Thank you so much, Larry, for taking the time to talk with me today.
0: Thank you, Pat. Um, it's It's always a real honor for me to to write for you and for Stat.
1: Well, thanks for saying that. You know, the Supreme Court has had a huge influence on Americans' lives, from education and a citizen's rights when being questioned by police to health, like its Roe versus Wade decision that state laws severely restrict or deny a woman's access to abortion, violate the Constitution's right to privacy, which the court overturned this summer in its decision in the case of Dobbs' versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. You and Michelle wrote that you are seeing what to you is a worrisome pattern in some of the court's recent decisions, an assault on public health. When did you start thinking about that?
0: Well, you know, the truth is is that um, ever since the court had a super conservative majority, um, it really shifted um, balance and became far more aggressive, and you know, I've thought that the court has had a blase disregard for precedent, um, and its decisions um, seem to be so predictable and ideologically consistent with a you know strong conservative um, position um, that it's very easy to foresee what the court will be doing with various cases. And sure enough, last term, um, as I mentioned in, in, uh, the excerpt from, from stat news that, that, you know, they, uh, completely expanded, um, second amendment rights and access to firearms. They overturned Roe versus Wade, which, you know, is a, a half a century of precedent. Um, it, uh, eviscerated the uh, idea of Clean uh, Air Act um, and, uh, and its COVID-19 um, decisions were undermining of public health. And it occurred to Michelle and I that, you know, it could be even worse, as bad as we thought it was last term, it could be even worse outcomes for public health um, in this coming term.
1: You know, for listeners who aren't familiar with the court itself, but only some of the big decisions, when did the shift to a more conservative court happen?
0: Well, you know, it's been happening gradually um, uh, under the Roberts Court, and I've always thought that Justice Roberts um, is gets more credit than he deserves because he is very, very deeply conservative. But I'll say this about. Uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, he's an institutionalist. He cares about the legitimacy of the court. Um, He wants to move cautiously and slowly, but clearly in only one direction, which is the conservative direction. Um, But once um, Amy Comey Barrett um, was appointed to the court to create a 6 3 majority, it no longer became the Roberts Court. Um, now, um, the, the court really doesn't care about you know, its legitimacy. Um, it doesn't want to move incrementally. Um, it wants to move quickly and aggressively. And it, it occurs to me also, and this is really important, I think, um, that the Supreme Court relies on the public for its credibility and legitimacy It has no enforcement power and yet the court within only a year or two is deciding to own all of the most politically contested terrain in America from abortions Hmm. to firearms um, through to climate change um, voting um, race um, and Um, LGBT rights. This is a worrying court um, because it's really wanting to shift the fulcrum of where the American public is um, politically and socially and economically.
1: Do you think that this is sort of an attempt to, quote, get back to where we were before those liberals took over the court?
0: Yes, in some ways that's absolutely true. And you know, it's been pointed out to me that I shouldn't be as critical as I am of this court because the Warren court was also uh, pushed the envelope. But I will say this, you know, the Warren court expanded rights. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it decided that um, there was a certain sphere of right and privacy and bodily integrity um, for women in their reproductive um, decisions, um, and and it did really believe that um, there should be you know a wider sphere of of human rights that Americans enjoy. This is the first first time ever that the court has actually taken away rights um, that have been Americans have expected to have um, for. Half the century, you know, in in Dobbs and when it overturned Roe versus Wade, there are many, many women in America who never lived um, in the United States where they didn't have certain reproductive rights. And that was snatched away. So I do think, you know, there is an analogy to the Warren court, but I wouldn't take it that far. You
1: know, Stat and many others have been covering the social determinants of health the conditions and the places that people live, learn, work, and play that affect everything from the environment to access to healthy food and transportation. My colleague Nick Florco has even started covering a new beat for STAT on the commercial determinants of health. You offered a new twist, at least for me, when you mentioned in your essay the legal determinants of health. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, I... I uh... Uh, co-chaired a Lancet Commission entitled The Legal Determinants of Health. And so I wanted to, you know, put that in um, to the stat article and link to that Lancet Commission report. Basically, what we show is, is that, you know, law creates policies or unwinds policies. And depending upon what the law says, um, it can have an enormous impact on on health, you know, we think about you know, vac- you know vaccines as a as a, a condition of entry to uh, for schools um, or the use of masks, a whole range of legal um, interventions. But beyond that, um, the rule of law um, and is a very very important determinant of health, and so. In this Lancet Commission report, we show how uh, laws like anti-discrimination laws um, based upon race, voting rights laws, um, uh, disability uh, discrimination laws, um, public health laws and the powers that we give public health agencies, these have enormous impacts on the social determinants of health. And it's not just exactly health; these are laws to do with housing and eviction, education, voting, uh, a whole range of different areas where laws of uh, laws can either create the conditions for healthy populations or make it more difficult um, to create those conditions. And so, you know, I, you know, the and even um, regulation of industry um, laws involved. And so that affects the commercial determinants of health. Um, So we're a nation of laws. um, And all of the way that we allow um, and implement our laws um, have enormous impacts on societal health, safety, well-being, and the environment.
1: You know, health officials don't usually think about the courts as related to their jobs. Do they need to start thinking about that now?
0: Oh, yeah. They need, you know, uh, I think all of us know, Pat, that um, public health is is based upon science and ethics, but it's also a political pursuit. And so public health agencies need to be constantly um, talking with um, federal and state legislators. Um, they need to be aware of where things are going in the courts and to to titrate their policies to, so that they're upheld. You know, if you look at COVID-19, um, literally, literally every COVID-19 policy that President Biden um, uh, tried to implement um, was either Struck down by the courts or long delayed by the courts. Um, And although state public health agencies fared a little better, many of them were delayed or struck down. And indeed, um, the same thing is um, true with a whole range of um, different um, uh, diseases, even when, or, or different interventions, even when universities or Businesses tried to create COVID uh, protection measures. Um, the courts were micromanaging it. You know, we're such a litigious society that no matter what you do, um, you, you end up in court. Um, and I don't know if your listeners really understand, but President Trump has appointed approximately 40% of all federal judges and one third of the Supreme Court justices has an enormous influence on the future of uh, the interaction between law, public policy, and health.
1: You know, you you brought up science there. You wrote that the court has become more dismissive of science and of experts. Yeah. That feels like what's happening in, in our broader culture. What's the danger here?
0: Well, you know, it's actually quite scary, Pat. Um, Sometimes you actually have justices parroting um, conspiracy theories or completely scientifically debunked ideas and they actually state them as if they were true. Um, You know, so the court in itself um, really gets the science wrong and, and is misled, just like regular people are um, by social media and other disinformation or misinformation um, campaigns. Um, and at the same time, you know, the court isn't deferential um, to public health experts, whether they be you know, public health commissioners at the state, local, or tribal level, um, or career science professionals, Um, at, you know, OSHA, CDC, um, a whole range of things. You know, right now, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal is finally about to review um, one single Florida judge that struck down the mask mandate on travel. You know, how we used to put on masks in airports and on planes. There was a single... Trump appointed judge in the middle district of Florida that banned nationally the transit mask mandate. And while um, DOJ and the Biden administration and CDC has appealed it, it hasn't even been heard on appeal yet. Um, and so this can be enormously damaging.
1: You know, I was a sophomore in college in and- January 1973, when the Supreme Court announced its Roe versus Wade decision. Do you remember, are you old enough to remember where you were when that decision got handed down?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm I'm certainly old enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Um, But um, I was probably in the UK at the time. In the UK, I was the head of the UK uh, equivalent to the ACLU. I was the head of the ACLU that was formed by that called uh, the National Council of Civil Liberties formed by George Orwell. Um, so I was probably in the UK at the time. Um, but uh, so I don't really, you know, quite remember, but I do really believe that, uh, that you know, basic rights like the right to contraception, the right to same-sex marriage, um, the right to abortion, um, you know, other LGBTQ plus rights, um, you know, racial equality um, voting. These were all um, major issues for the Warren court. And I I was very proud, you know. Um, uh, uh, Justice Brennan, you know, was one of my heroes. And um, I wrote a book once and on civil liberties, and, and he, he graciously signed it, and he was a hero. And I can't say um, that the full court today are my heroes, but I, there are... It was very inspiring to see um, Justice Jackson um, uh, be sworn in uh, uh, on the first um, Monday of the Supreme Court's term. Um, Justice Sotomayor, um, Elena Kagan and others um, are, you know, I think really great people. And I I knew Ruth Ginsburg very well before her untimely death.
1: You know, I I read somewhere that the Supreme Court issues about 75 decisions a year, that's a lot of work. And given the changing makeup of the court, a changing view of what is constitutionally quote right for American Americans. You and Michelle highlighted several recent cases that, that you said don't explicitly deal with US public health, but could have a significant impact both on health op- outcomes and efforts to create the conditions in which everyone can thrive. Is there one case looming that you're most worried about?
0: Gosh, there there are um it's hard to choose one case, but I guess um uh uh the uh some of the cases that really worry me the most um have to do with the uh Clean Water Act, um and with um race-based um decisions to advance equity as well as LGBTQ plus rights; um, those are the ones that really um, worry me uh, the most, along so, with, of course, voting rights.
1: Right, it's a lot of big issues there. Yeah, what's the Clean Water case about?
0: Yeah, so you know the the Clean Water Act cases re- really uh, a you know follow on from. The Clean Air Act um, decision last term, um, where the court really narrowed the scope for the Environmental Protection Agency to protect, uh, you know, against climate change and greenhouse emissions, um, which everyone knows is has an enormous impact on on human health and food security, and you know. Um, Hurricanes and flooding and droughts and and all of that. Um, the uh, in Sackett versus uh, EPA, um, I think the court could eviscerate protections under the Clean Water Act. Climate justice is you know based squarely on mountains of evidence that poorer people, especially in you know racial and ethnic minorities, live in environments deeply hazardous to their health due, due to decades of discriminatory lending and and zoning practices. Um, if the justice exclude key watersheds, which is what this case is under the Clean Water Act, there will be further uh, degradation of both waterways and public health, um, but with really disproportionate impacts on already marginalized communities, which will enhance rather than narrow um, uh, health disparities in the United States, uh, especially
1: those based upon race. What kinds of impacts are you talking about in the short term and the long term?
0: Well, what I'm talking about is the EPA not having the power to um, protect against uh, contaminated water um, in neighborhoods, you know, Think about, you know, um, lead in the water in Flint, Michigan, Um, or uh, uh, think about um, living in a community that has toxic spills um, in uh, watersheds. Um, So the court, when it dealt with the Clean Air Act, and I think also with the Clean Water Act, you know, isn't content to just discuss the narrow issue Uh, in terms of degradation of waterways, it basically is advancing a theory that it never has before, um, which is called the major questions doctrine, um, which means that if the decision of a health and safety agency or an environmental agency um, like EPA uh, will affect you know, major economic ac- or social activity in America. Uh, Congress has to explicitly um, uh, allow and delegate that authority um, to the agency. But of course, you know, when, when Congress wrote the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act, it couldn't possibly have thought of all of the future ways that our waterways and our air could be contaminated, Um, um, just like under the Public Health Service Act for CDC, it can't possibly have predicted a major pandemic like COVID-19. And so it really does, you know, handcuff um, public health, safety and environmental agencies um, in safeguarding our health, our safety. And um, the air we breathe and the, the water we drink and, uh, you know, where we live. And this is, could have devastating effects on the health of communities and particularly the health of um, uh, African-American and, and uh, poor communities.
1: Who are most likely to live in areas with Environmental degradation because it's the cheapest place to live, yeah. and they've been pushed out of other other areas. Yes,
0: yeah. and you know, zoning, structural racism, a whole range of factors have pushed this. You're exactly right, Pat.
1: So, in a sense, this case is like saying, "Okay, EPA, you got too big for your britches. You're doing things that weren't authorized by Congress, so cut it out." Is that kind of the the yeah you know? Tavern description of that?
0: That is the tavern description, but it's actually even worse because it, just, does, it doesn't just mean cut this out. It means stop innovating. You know, it actually chills the EPA or the CDC or OSHA um, or Consumer Protection um, from doing their job.
1: And so in a sense, if, if the EPA wants to do something, quote, extra, it has to get Congress to authorize it. And it's not easy to get Congress to authorize anything these days.
0: Yeah. I mean, it would take forever to get Congress to, I mean, the thing about public health agencies is, is the reason Congress um, created them is so they can act nimbly and flexibly um, to face new hazards. Um, It's literally impossible to get Congress to pass a law that will actually predict what the next health crisis is going to be, um, right. so you 're basically asking Congress you know to micromanage all future health safety and environmental decisions. Nobody can do that um, and not only no, that nobody can do it, Congress clearly won't do it because we all know that Congress is completely dysfunctional.
1: You mentioned that cases about voting rules might have a big impact on public health. How would that work?
0: So the voting rights um, is extraordinarily important, as we all know in America, that's the heart of our democracy. And what um, uh, one case Moore versus Harper could do is the Supreme Court could strip state courts of the authority to review the legality of state voting laws. And so if you think about um, when uh, a state gerrymanders in a way that pushes all of the African-American votes, or most, the vast majority of them, to one congressional district. Um, rather, And so you might have a state that has, say, 30 or you 35 know, you percent know, African-American or, or, or Hispanic population, and yet, they would—they wouldn't get a third of the uh, the congressional um, seats. They would get one. Um, and even if a state supreme court were to say, "Well, that's unconstitutional uh, under our state constitution," the supreme court could say, "No, this is just whatever the legislature wants to do. Let them do it."
1: That's scary.
0: That's extraordinarily scary. Um, and, you know, there's, there are two cases. One is Moore versus Harper, the, Harper, the other is Merrill versus um, Milligan. Um, that's also going to make it even easier for legislatures to deny um, proportionate representation for minority communities, the, gutting the Voting Rights Act. Um, so, this is another, you know, place where Congress has acted, it's enacted the Voting Rights Act, um, but the Supreme Court has been aggressively um, reducing the Voting Act, Rights Act to be, be, becoming meaningless. To me, this is really outrageous. The American Medical Association said that you know, limiting access to voting um, is strongly linked to adverse health outcomes, ranging from health insurance coverage to cancer deaths. Um, and that voting uh, restrictions will correlate um, with undermining the social determinants of health.
1: Larry, you close your essay with a call to action for political and civic activism. What will that do? I
0: believe we really shouldn't always be in despair. Um, And the Supreme court is only one branch of government and even government itself has counterbalances um, with civil society, advocacy, um, industry, universities, um, health advocates. And so we need to stand up. Um, We can't just simply roll over and say, oh dear, you know, we've got the Supreme Court. We actually have to stand up, make our voices heard and make the case why science and public health and safety and a clean, healthy environment is really important to the kinds of society we want to form. Um, And challenge the Supreme Court or Congress or others at every stage. Um, We must never ever um, fail Um, to tell our stories, and to fight for health, and to fight for justice. That's our duty as Americans.
1: That's a great call to action. Um, it's, It's always struck me as a little strange that with the Supreme Court, we have to wait for voluntary retirement or death for a change to be made. Do you think there needs to be somebody taking a look at how the Supreme Court happens? Yeah,
0: the U.S. Supreme Court, with you know a politic, purely political appointment for life, is 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 quite unique around the world. There are other ways to do it. You can have term. I don't believe in packing the court, but I do believe that you should have term appointments. Um, I believe that you should have um, uh, a an advisory group um, of say distinguished uh, uh, lawyers and others. Um, that might say to the, you know, to a president, well, here are three or here are five choices of highly qualified people. And then the president could choose among them, but simply to allow the president to choose, you know, babies really just as young as possible, as fierce ideologues as possible. Um, and even when the American Bar Association says they're unqualified um, that's no way to have a, a court as powerful as our Supreme Court. We really do need to reform um, the way uh, justices are appointed and serve.
1: Many thanks for talking with me about this today, Larry. I think you've given you've given me, and I, I dare say many listeners, a lot of food for thought. You know, it's funny, Bob Dylan's song, The Times They Are A-Changin' is going through my head as we've been speaking. Um I guess the times are always changing, but sometimes it seems that change is even more evident. Fingers crossed that some or even most of the changes ahead will be good ones for personal and public health.
0: I couldn't agree more. What your mom said to you is really true. If you've got your health, you've got everything.
1: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion.statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the white water ahead, or as Bob Dylan wrote, admit that the waters around you have grown.